exhibit. And I think it's for the reason that you stated in the beginning is, you know, a lot of our staff was tired of anniversary exhibits. They heard anniversary exhibit and they thought, boring, same old stories. Um, And quite frankly, I don't think they framed it this way, but I think they thought the stories weren't going to be particularly inclusive. It wasn't going to reach that uh, dynamic history that the city really had. So the reason I remember that it was Thanksgiving was because I was visiting my in-laws in Dallas, and I got a call from the then director of exhibits, and she gave me a lot of news, and then at the end she said, oh, and we are going to have to do a 250th anniversary exhibit, so think about that while you're in Dallas. And, um, and the power of a good walk, I took a walk on a trail uh, right by my, parent, my in-law's house, and I came back and I told my wife, I said, what we're going to do is we're going to tell 250 years of St. Louis history through the stories of 50 people, 50 places, 50 moments, 50 images, and 50 objects. We're going to call it 250 and 250. It's going to be amazing. Um, and because she's supportive, she said, okay. Um, <laughs> but what that did is it allowed two things. Um, one, because we had the framework, we could hit the ground running. So even though we only had 14 months to go from idea to exhibit on the floor, we could do that because we had this framework. And I can talk about some of the conversations about how we chose. But also, both before the exhibit opened and once the exhibit opened, whenever I told visitors that framework, they immediately got it and immediately said, did you include this? Did you include this? And they never asked it in a nice way. It was always very accusatory. Um, But it allowed us to say, we weren't picking the 250 most important selections, the 50 most important people, the 50 places you have to go before you die, but we were trying to capture the richness, diversity, and complexity of the city's history from the very beginning to the present. And that idea that I kept saying, that richness, diversity, and complexity, we were constantly referring to that sort of mission. So this, I just wanted to show you what the exhibit looked like to give you an idea, and then we can talk more about it. This was the first image people saw. It had an image from each of the selections, and even there, it sort of showcases that these are not going to be the stories that St. Louisans know necessarily. Uh, Most St. Louisans would look at that, and they would know maybe one of those stories, but certainly not five of them, and we can talk about it later. Um, This just gives you an overview of the gallery. It goes clockwise. The very first thing people saw was this 250 years and 250 seconds film. I wish I had part of that, but I don't. But even that showcased that we were going to do things a little different. Here was a wham-bam, real fast overview of St. Louis history. Included things like... um, the, that Stagger Lee shot his rival and became a legend of song. It included early slavery um, numbers. So it included already some stories that people didn't necessarily know. And then each section went into each category. So the 50 people section, again, looked at a lot of people that maybe people would know. Uh, Charles Lindbergh is in there, Adolphus Bush. But a lot of people that they wouldn't know, uh, Gertie Corey, who was the first female scientist to win a Nobel Prize, or Annie Malone, who is most likely the country's first African-American female millionaire who made her riches in St. Louis. Um, we also, because people yelled at us, we also <laughs> provided a section where they could say, who should we have included? And each month we put up a new 51st person that voters were saying. So. We were talking often about we're really trying to spark a conversation. We're not trying to tell you these are the most important. We're telling you some interesting stories. You should tell us who you wanted included. Nellie was very popular in this, never quite got to be the 51st person, but he was mentioned often. 
50 moments section, these were 50 first-hand accounts of St. Louis history. So they were, again, very different. Not the, necessarily the big moments, but from the very beginning. So the first was from the Founders Journal um, about founding the city. The very last one was about two guys who caught David Fries's home run in Game 6 of the World Series. So again, lighthearted, serious. One of the best is right there is the story of Lucy Ann Delaney. She was enslaved for the first 14 years of her life, sued for her freedom, but spent 17 months in jail because the other attorney said she would try to be, uh, she would try to escape and get to be free. Uh, her firsthand account is of when she went before a judge and the judge told her after 14 years being enslaved 17 months in prison that she was a free woman and could go. Um, that was in a memoir, but we had a voice actor come in, read that so people could actually get the audio experience. We also had group listening rooms where people, if they wanted to listen as small groups, could listen as well. Uh, 50 images, this again, not the 50 most important images. This became an image theater from the very first images of St. Louis to this is uh, actually friends of mine, but this is uh, 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 the Nimagadas, a uh, great family, uh, experiencing first night, the New Year's Eve celebration, right before the anniversary of the year. This was amazing. This ended up being about 23 minutes, which is very long in the middle of an exhibit to ask people to sit down. We really didn't expect people would sit and watch the whole thing. We thought they would watch some and come. But what happened is crowds waited for this film to start. They watched the whole thing, and then our guest services had to be ready for them because then they all went to the other sections um, because it was like a St. Louis family album. Um, it had a great original soundtrack underneath it. Uh, the big image, small image, and then in the left corner is a bit of a caption. 50 places. This uh, The dominant feature is there in the background. Uh, all 50 places were drawn. Oh, it's a little hard to see on the screen, but um, all 50 places were drawn by a local artist in a chalkboard mural. Um, we like the idea of chalk because uh, many of these places were erased from the physical landscape. So you learned about St. Louis's Chinatown that is now the parking lot of the Cardinals uh, Stadium. Uh, you learned about the Pruitt-Igo housing complex, one of the most infamous housing complexes in world history. Um, we also let visitors join in on that column that says, what places would you have included? And people got to write on what they would, they would say. The way this, oh, there's a better shot. Uh, it was really beautiful. People were really mad that we were going to get rid of it afterwards. But, um, and then what happened is you could go to these kiosks, pick a place that you were interested in, and then learn more about it and with more photos and maps. 50 objects is pretty straightforward. It's 50 objects that speak to St. Louis history. Again, there it was nice that I could say, you know, if you look in the top left corner, uh, that's an Osage ceremonial lance even before the city was founded. But there were also things like a Build-A-Bear, um, a Monopoly game that had the arch as one of the pieces, a wide variety of objects from, quote, very important uh, to maybe some that you wouldn't expect. And then it ended with a portrait of St. Louis at 250 years. This was a documentary where the year leading up, I sent out a videographer to capture what St. Louis was like today. The idea being that they had walked through 250 years of history, and now they come to this, which really explores what St. Louis is like today. You can see on the left that there is quite a diversity of topics, including the Missouri Wrestling Alliance. So uh, diversity in all sorts of ways. 
And then there were lots of interesting associated projects. This, and we can talk more about, is one of the most successful. It was called Dear St. Louis 2064. It was your chance to write a letter to St. Louisans celebrating their 300th anniversary. Uh, we got thousands upon thousands of letters, and they took an interesting turn after Ferguson. You could see that many more started talking about race. So it was, it was a uh, pretty serious project and had some great archival potential for future historians. Um, this is an interesting project. This was called Step Inside Historic St. Louis. We took these great old historic photos. St. Louis hosted the first American Olympics and the third modern day Olympics. This is me saying Fred Winters ain't su such a big deal. Um, and each month visitors could come in, get their photos taken in this historic photo. There was a different one each month. They were all branded and encouraged them to come back each time. And it was a great way for them to interact with history in a different way. Then we had a series of banner shows that went throughout the community every month. Uh, a location, five different locations could get a different banner show. It had one example from each of the categories and then the last one said come to the Missouri History Museum to see them all. But they were in universities, they were in the airport, they were at air shows, they were at festivals, they were at other museums. It was a great way for us to get these stories out into the community where people just come across them and don't have to make a trip to the museum. Great. That is everything I have. Thank you, Jody. Many organizations held 150th anniversary commemorations related to Lincoln's assassination, death, and funeral train, but Ford's theater is and was ground zero. Sarah, what were your goals for the 150th assassination commemoration? Let's pass that down to you. Well, the most important things for us, um, what we, we planned for almost two years for this event because we knew that it was a moment that we were going to have national and even international attention on us in an unprecedented way. And so we wanted to capitalize on it as much as we could. And to us, honestly, that was the most important thing, I think, was to, to try out things that we weren't necessarily going to be able to launch at other times because we were able to fundraise to an extent that we hadn't been able to at other times. Um, and to do things that be, that we could because of the attention. And so, go ahead to the next the next one. So the primary things we did were we launched much too close together. I would never do it again. A bunch of major digital projects, which I'll talk about. Um, we put together a temporary exhibit that was sort of a jewel box exhibit. It was a tiny little. Um, temporary exhibit bringing items together that had been at the theater that night, uh, the night of the assassination. We created 36 hours nonstop of programming um, on our very small footprint site and then also on the street. Um, so we closed down the street and you're going to see all of this. Um, and then the most, I think the thing that, you're, that you'll see here is we actually used um, social media in a really um, effective way that we were uh, amazed by. So, um, so for, and we, we partnered with other sites. So um, social media was really important to us because we are a site that, was, um, that is both national and local in significance and, um, and we wanted to make absolutely certain, go ahead, that we, had, um, that we, that we were able to accommodate um, people who couldn't be there. We also have only 550 seats in our theater. So in fact, we partnered with the National Portrait Gallery, which is right around the corner from Ford's Theater, 
and people who could not get tickets to the performance. There was sort of a memorial performance the night of the, uh, the 150th in the theater. We live streamed the event into um, the National Portrait Gallery courtyard that night. And what was amazing about it, um, which was really exciting, was we were able to get permission before the, that to screen Lincoln for free. And so that then became a draw in and of itself. And you can go on to the next. Um, so this was what it was like outside of the theater that evening. Um, and, and you can see um, people were standing in the entire street and we handed out candles because we decided we wanted to make this a social history event. So it wasn't just about that moment of the assassination, but the entire 36 hours and really about how people responded. So it wasn't just about Lincoln. It was really important to us that we, in this time when we had all this attention, could say, you need to think about this event differently. Compare it in your own mind to September 11th or to any other national event where we all think about where were we, not what was going on right there. So you can see here, these were all, there were people in the street that entire night, and this was, this was what it looked like that night. Go ahead. So we were, and we were getting, Mike is actually our wonderful intern who was um, a grad student at the time, um, but we had a tweet up. So we had, even though we had, it was really um, a limited number of people who could come into the theater, we had a whole set of t uh, tweeters who um, came together and then were brought into the theater. Um, and they were really, um, they were really active and there were a lot of people tweeting who were not in DC. Um, we actually were set, we trended second in uh, DC, which we'd never done anything like that before with the Ford's 150 hashtag. So this, so what you saw was um, the whole evening, this is the next day. This is 7.22 in the morning when uh, Abraham Lincoln was, um, was uh, pr pronounced dead. And you can see we had all, we had about 100 reenactors who came from all over to participate. We had, um, we had about uh, 38, I can tell you, we had 100, about 100 reenactors. We had 38 living historians who participated who were actually paid something so that they could um, share narratives of witnesses. And they were out in the street throughout the night. And then, um, and then we also had, um, we had just regular people who came. And this was actually, I love this one because this is just somebody who, who happened to come by in the morning. He was on his way to work. Um, we had lots of people who came from all over the country, especially for the event, but he just happened to be there. Um, I, was, this, I just wanted to share this because I was really proud of it. it. Social media can make an event come alive if you can figure out how to use it effectively. Um, and this was an experiment for us. I mean, we have social media, but we had never done anything like this before. Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, we often think about commemorating anniversaries in big number years, but great things happen outside that traditional approach. Um, Dina, what was your new strategy for commemorations? And so I don't know that it's actually a new strategy, but I think it's one that people often forget to do. Um, and so really what I'm talking about is how we should be commemorating every day, because I knew that my colleagues would pick specific case studies. 
So uh, what I did, I was talking to one of my staff members and she said it's not just about you as an institution or even history in and of itself, it's really about the connections you make to your community. And so as we were talking about it, she was saying people don't just connect to the March on Washington on the anniversary. They don't just connect to um, you know, the four little girls in the bombing on that date. Or as we go forward throughout our exhibitions, I was looking at all of these dates of commemoration and, and thinking about them. Um, and in saying that, you know, she was talking about the Martin Luther King Gallery and, she, and his assassination. And she said, people who come through our exhibition and see that space, knowing that he was assassinated on that date, it's April 4th every, every day because we talk about that every day and people are commemorating that period, that moment, that memory every day. Um, and so March on Washington and the assassination are just two examples of that. And really that, um, when I was thinking about all of this, it was a legacy is about making everyday connections and commemoration is acknowledging those legacies. And so even though I could talk about what we did for you know, the anniversary of the March on Washington or what we'll be doing for the 60th anniversary of Emmett Till's death, what I really wanted to do was just pick a random set of dates and talk about kind of how we are commemorating the civil rights movement by talking about the legacies and what's happening today. And so I chose um, basically the month of June. So it was our the first anniversary, so I'm at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, so we just had our first anniversary on June 23rd. Um, and so as part of that, instead of having one celebration, even on June 23rd, we ended up having about 10 different programs during the month of June. And I separated them out by target audiences and by legacies that I wanted to highlight. Um, and so the pictures that I'm going to show are just a few examples of those 10 programs that we did, not only to kind of commemorate our anniversary, but also to commemorate um, how we think of the civil rights movement in connection to what's happening today, because we're really trying to be relevant. So this um, is an artist, and he was at our Young Professionals event. Um, and so we were really just giving young, young professionals an opportunity to go through our exhibition spaces and do something creative within that space. And he was an example of um, someone who we hired to do something very creative. Um, and we thought it was just going to be an extra benefit and something interesting that was happening. Um, and we were going to raffle it off at the end of the night. And people were actually staying for that raffle in particular. And so, again, thinking about what we can do on a daily basis and contemporarily <clears throat> to commemorate. Um, the next one is about um, an evening event that we ended up doing, um, and it was to talk about um, the Freedom Rides. And so we have, we're fortunate being in Atlanta that we have um, several prominent freedom writers, several prominent Atlanta student movement activists, people who are alive and telling their stories. So on the far right, um, that is one of our um, interns, and she's actually talking to all of the um, activists about their stories. 
the one closest um, is Bernard Lafayette, and I call him out in particular because he often talks to our students um, who are coming through about his experience in being with King and what that did for him. So he was actually in Memphis the night before King was assassinated, um, and King said to him, you need to make sure that you spread this philosophy of nonviolence. And then King died the next day, and Bernard Lafayette has spent the rest of his life doing that. Um, and so he talks to students about that in particular. This is um, one of our toddler programs. So the Center for Civil and Human Rights, we often think that that has a lot of um, deep history, a lot of important but scary things for kids, that's what we say. Um, but I'm just using this as an example to show that we do bring young children into our space um, because, again, when we're talking about legacies, you can break that down into values about cooperation, about inclusion. Um, for little kids, it's about being nice to each other. Um, so making sure that that being one of our target audiences, um, that we're helping them from early on talk about those legacies. Uh, this was an international discussion that we had um, at the center. So um, I'm talking to Livuyo Mandela. He is the great-grandson of Nelson Mandela. Um, and so that was with an international focus um, on the civil rights movement and nonviolence and legacies. And so he was there and we were actually, we ended up talking about all of the similarities between what's happening in the United States right now and what is happening in South Africa. And so we talked about um, xenophobia. We talked about <clears throat> women um, entrepreneurs. We talked about, um, we talked about affirmative action. And so really talking to our community about things that are happening um, to them very far away, and yet we're all having the same conversations. This is Gideon's Promise. Um, they are a partner organization, so I'm always trying to partner um, with local, national, and international groups. And so Gideon's Promise um, is based in Atlanta, but they are national, and they work with public defenders um, in terms of making sure that they are managing their workloads well and that they are actually supporting um, the people that they are defending, but also that there is an advocacy component. And so this was an um, activist workshop that they led in terms of making sure that people know their rights, but also how um, lay people, how all of us, can actually help in terms of this advocacy for, for public defenders and the people they are defending. Um, and then this one is Chicago Love. That was, it's a documentary. And it, um, it is very interesting. If you all find it out there, you should definitely watch it. Um, it focuses on hip hop in Chicago um, and the love of hip hop in Chicago, but also all of the people who have come out of Chicago. 
Um, so it really gets, again, to our teen audience, to our young people. Um, but the message of Chicago Love really gets a lot deeper than that. And so um, they talk about what is essentially trauma deserts. They talk about food deserts. They talk about education and shutting down schools and how kids have to cross gang territory to get to um, their respective schools. And so even though it is interesting and um, good for teens because they, they will flock to it. It actually talks about a lot of deep things um, and then we're using that to create a teen activist group to talk about what's happening in Atlanta. So Atlanta love. Um, this is, how many, does anybody know of the Monarchs? Have you guys heard? Yes. So uh, the girl on the left was actually um, the you guys probably, some of you know, that on the cover of the magazine, and they were talking about her being really young. And um, But anyway, the interesting thing that I really want to put forward is that um, her team, the Monarchs, came, and they were doing a civil rights tour. And so they specifically stopped in Atlanta at our site. Um, and what they were doing over the summer, I don't remember if I have um, pictures of it or not, but they were going in a retrofitted, like, bus um, from 1950s, 1960s. They were coming through to all of these different stops. They were going in their uniforms through all of these civil rights sites. Um, and then they were also doing, you can see they're videotaping there. So we had some of our um, civil rights activists who were speaking with them. But they were also doing um, interviews with media every place that they stopped, talking about how um, they feel like they're making a difference, but this experiential learning is very important for them as well. Thanks, Tina. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of you touched on this, um, and I want to open it up to everyone else for questions too, but we'll kick it off with this one. Anniversaries have a way of making us look at how much has or hasn't changed since whatever point in time we're trying to commemorate, whether that's 250 years ago or just even one year ago, as in the case of the anniversary of Ferguson. Um, what strategies do you use to commemorate what's happening today or in the more recent past? And some of you already touched on this, but if you can elaborate on what you're doing. Um, can I? Go for it. All right. um, this is something that we did some of uh, with the 150th. Um, we, what we tried to do was two things. First of all, we, do, um, we did daytime uh, panels on both days of the 150th that specifically focused on um, topics, the present day topics. So one of them actually looked at South Africa and we looked at Mandela and Lincoln and made connections between them and um, did a panel discussion um, around that. Um, the, other, um, the other thing that we've done is that we've taken, we've actually used art because we're working theater specifically to make links between Abraham Lincoln's legacy and what happened in the night in, uh, in, with his assassination and afterwards um, to the present day. So we'll often do pieces of art, and we did that this past year. Um, so those are two of the things that we did that were specifically associated with the commemoration. One of the things we struggle with at Fords, really briefly, is that um, often we um, want to do things, and I, I don't know if a lot of other people deal with this. I feel like we're sort of the opposite of other people in this, unfortunately, for us. We want to do things that are um, more about legacy or relevance, and people are, 
people come to Ford's like once and they're like, no, no, tell us the story of the assassination or we'll hate you forever. Like, it, they're very, very committed to hearing that one story. And so trying to do other, we have to sort of find ways to do other things kind of around that because otherwise people get really upset. I think ours is kind of interesting to that as well. So um, National Center for Civil and Human Rights, our mission is very contemporary. So we empower people to take the protection of everyone's human rights personally. So very much a social change mission, not about collecting, preserving, disseminating. Um, and, but then we also have two very different, we've got a lot of constituents, but two very different groups being civil people who are interested in civil rights and people who are interested in human rights. And so balancing those two on a national scale is something that we're still figuring out. Um, but that's one of the reasons that I was talking about commemoration in the everyday and, and commemoration at kind of random times. Um, because we certainly have people who are saying, you know, you have to make sure that you commemorate the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the March on Washington and Emmett Till and, 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 and. But then we also have people who are saying, you need to make sure that you are commemorating the, the day, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is on December 10th, and the International Day of Nonviolence, and the International Day of the Girl, and the International Day of the Woman, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> In addition to Hispanic Heritage Month, Black History Month, Women's History Month. Um, and so for me, I think uh, because of our mission, that's why we focus on legacy so much. Um, but we are also very quickly coming to um, just decide, and, and we will decide, I think, different dates every year, but that we will do one of those international, historical, commemorative every every month. So every month we'll have a different one that we do, but I think that we'll end up changing those on an annual basis, deciding which ones are going to be the important ones for the year, just because we have so many. Can I just, um, I just want to add that one of the things I, one of the things that was mentioned up here and I forgot about um, that was really important, it seemed to our audience, people commented it on social media a lot, was that when we commemorated Lincoln's assassination, we didn't only talk about him in the best possible light. We were critic. We, we mentioned things that he did that were upsetting to people that people were critical of him for, and there was a lot of of um, positive positive response to that, which we were really happy about because we were anxious about doing it. Um, so I just wanted to add that because it's it's an important element of that complexity. complexity. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, uh, in the 250 exhibit, we brought it up to the present in, the, in that there were people who were alive, places you still uh, pass by every day. Um, programming is a big space where we talk about events of today or the recent past, and we're kind of a behemoth, so we do more than 700 programs a year, um, and a lot of those programs focus on issues of race and social justice. So one great thing about that is when something like Ferguson happens, 
our audiences are primed to have those discussions at the History Museum. So it doesn't look like, oh, now they're interested in these issues. We've been interested in those issues for years, been having those discussions. So many of the community discussions around Ferguson were had at our museum, our uh, teen, teen theater program put together hashtag Ferguson play. Uh, we're doing a collecting initiative. You can learn a lot about that tomorrow. There's a panel on our collecting initiative. On the exhibit side, it's a little harder because we plan so far ahead that you can't always respond, but then sometimes things happen. Um, so we have been planning a civil rights history exhibit for several years that will now incorporate Ferguson and will add those issues and uh, that will be coming in 2017. Um, we have started an LGBT collecting initiative a few years ago. We knew that there would be an exhibit at some point and then when the Supreme Court decided to legalize gay marriage, we decided on the five-year anniversary, we'll roll out our exhibit. So sometimes we're looking uh, for, I used to be a journalist, it was time hooks. So, you know, we're looking for ways to uh, connect those exhibits to current issues. But we do a, probably a lot more on the programming side than we do on the exhibit side. Questions from all of you? Or experiences you had in doing commemorations that you want to share? Yeah. So we're getting ready for a huge statewide celebration, so it's really interesting to me to get to hear all of these perspectives on museums, because we're doing things statewide, we're doing traveling exhibitions, we're doing educational programs. This is a huge initiative that the state of Alabama wants to be, give a lasting impact to the state and its, and its people. But um, one of the things that we run into, of course, is the issue of race, um, because we do have We've had a whole huge debacle with the taking down of the Confederate flag in our capital. We have protests, but we also have a huge history of civil rights. Um, I live in Montgomery and was able to go to the march as it finished from Selma to Montgomery and all these great things. So what? how did you address some of those black and white issues with your programs and your um, museums? I think for us, again, it helped that people were, knew that that's what we would do. I mean, so it just wasn't surprising that we were going to talk about issues of slavery, issues of civil rights, um, issues of uh, gender. Um, so I think probably the best thing was that we had primed them ahead of time. The other thing, though, and I oftentimes talk to groups about the fact that we're oftentimes more nervous about doing, telling those stories than the public really is. The public is oftentimes ready for those stories. I mean, when we do programs, some of our you know, most well-attended documentaries are those documentaries that take on the tough subjects. Um, we just had uh, the Nazi propaganda exhibit from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. It was our most successful traveling show that we've ever had. Um, and a lot of people didn't think that that would be true. Now we also have a very popular local exhibit that's a lot of spillover, but it is that people are willing to have those discussions and want to have those discussions. So part of it is just convincing the power structure at your museum or your organization that, yeah, we shouldn't shy away from those topics because oftentimes they will be some of the most successful, however you define success. And they will be engaging, they will get large audiences, people really want to hear those. I would agree. I, and I think for us to, again, with the, the being relevant, um, 
is making sure that people know, you know, when we're talking about civil rights, we're also talking about human rights. And so even just going back in history and looking at those primary sources when they were calling them human rights, you know, um, and so in that then we need to branch out into other things. So we can talk about immigration, we can talk about LGBT, because they were talking about those in some form then, we're talking about them in a form now. So it's all kind of connected together. Um, another thing I think is just being open to having conversations. So, you know, if, if there is this concern, it's finding a way to bring the two groups together to have conversations that they aren't normally having, right? Um, and then I think the other part, somebody was asking me about um, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and then Police Lives Matter and what is the National Center's, you know, what are we saying about it? And we're, we're actually not saying anything officially about it, so don't go back to my, my marketing team and tell them <laughs> that I said. Um, but, you know, if you asked me what, what it would be in the, on the senior leadership team as we, we would be talking about it, it would be that all lives matter. And that has kind of gotten its own connotation, and people think it's watered down, and da da da. And but when I said that to the person last night, I said that is the closest, truest thing to our mission. Again, we empower people to take the protection of everyone's human rights personally. So for us, all lives matter, and we're not going to choose one side or the other. Um, and and I think to Sarah, Sarah said earlier, it's being open to the complexity of the conversation. One of the things that we've, I mean, we, we our site commemorates um, always, every day, we commemorate a, a tr one of the great national tragedies in our country's history, right? So, um, and because it's far enough in the past, we may not feel as emotionally connected to it as we might to something that's happened more recently, but, um, you know, we still have to confront the fact that there were reasons why this horrible thing happened. It was... It's very complex, but it wasn't just because this, there was this crazy Confederate man. I mean, there were a lot of people who disliked Abraham Lincoln, and not all of them were Confederates, you know, and not, some of them were abolitionists. Some of the, I mean, there were a lot of people. So the point is, we're, we're not here to um, sanctify Lincoln. And I think that's a very different approach um, than people generally take and we're, we're able to do that we're not his birthplace like I think if we were in a different position we might get some more pushback but we're able to talk about complexity and and I'm really grateful for being in that position um, and I think people appreciate there, there's a real appreciation of that because other if you as a museum take a stand or as a historic site take a stand that you're saying this is the story we tell this is the one you know then you're really um, you're shutting down other voices, right? But I also think, and I think you're saying this by talking about the complexity of Lincoln, it's okay to say this is the story we're telling, yeah. and 
if it offends you, well, let's talk about that. Um, and, and we, I, I'm very comfortable. I don't know if all of my museum is as comfortable. With, I'm very comfortable with offending people. Um, no, that's not the takeaway. Um, but, and you know, that happened. That, that's right. Uh, and that happened with each of those selections. I mean, people did get very upset. You know, so the last night uh, people were lingering in the exhibit. It was open for a year, but that last weekend was really really crowded and I was walking through one last time and I walked backwards and someone in the object section talked and talked to me about how great it was and how excited they were and then I rounded the corner and someone yelled at me because Grant wasn't in the 50 people section. I thought well that's a perfect close to the year. One person complimenting me, one person yelling at me. Um, you know that 50 people section, uh, one of the selections was Phyllis Schlafly. Um, not a popular choice. Um, again, we weren't saying 50 most important or 50 most likable, whatever you think of Phyllis Schlafly. Um, but Kate Richards O'Hare, a leading socialist of her day, was also included. So it was, I felt like if any of those categories, selections offend you, great, now we get to have a conversation. Um, but I felt very confident about the reason we chose each selection. So I knew if someone said, you shouldn't have selected this category, I could say, no, this is why it's important. They might disagree with me, and I had people call and say, why didn't you include this? And then when I talked to them about it, they said, oh, I understand. They might not have agreed, and there were places for them to put their own selections, but, and that might be part of it too. Like, tell the story you wanna tell, know why you wanna tell it, defend it, but then also maybe leave those opportunities for other people to tell their stories, whether it be social media or whatever. And I think, for me, I tell my staff, get comfortable with uncomfortable ideas. Just get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, because whether we're talking about race or whether we're talking about LGBT or well, whatever we're talking about, someone is going to be uncomfortable and pushing you because they are uncomfortable. So just get, get used to that and be okay being in that space. How many of you are, are actively planning for a commemoration right now? Okay. What are some of your biggest concerns? Funding. Funding. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sarah, you touched on that um, briefly in yours about the fundraising potential yeah. um, behind commemorations. Yeah, we, um, we actually found, and you know, it, it depends how you, how you frame this. We are, again, we're a site that has national and international uh, visibility so it's a, maybe a little different from some of your commemorations but we started planning two years in advance and we were really clear that there was going to be a lot of visibility to anyone who funded us and you know and and you do get press you're gonna get I mean people love anniversaries they love commemorations and we were really able to leverage that and I think what was most important to me and to the rest of the programming team was that we put together a slate of possible programs um, all of which were fairly high-profile things that we'd been wanting to do and a bunch of them were digital, specifically because we figured we don't want this to just happen once. We want it to. We want to be able to leverage this as something that we can continue, and um, and so we then gave that to development and said, okay, you tell us what we're going to be able to do. Basically, um, you know, obviously with our executive director's input, and. Um, and that was uh, a really good place to be in because it was almost like a wish list. 
Um, but but from a funding perspective, you know, we um, I can share with you all what this is a this is a document that I have some issues with because I hate the fact that we're looking at impact purely by the numbers. But um, I think probably we don't need all of these. But um, but this was something that our marketing department created after the fact to give a sense of what the reach had been of our event, of, of all of the events and, and programs that we did. Um, and then in addition to that, um, but in advance of that, you know, we were able to say these partnerships that we're creating, whatever it is, people, you know, people could see that there was potential um, and that really helped us. And we were able to go to some new donors. It wasn't all um, previous donors, but we were able to get some people to step up who give us money on a regular basis also. And I do think that's the biggest benefit. You are going to have a big impact out in the community and people are going to be interested in coming to whatever you're putting together. So <laughs> that, that really is a positive sell to donors. And, and it does, for many donor, donors, come down to numbers. So mm -hmm. our exhibit, the 250 exhibit, was our most visited exhibit since 1927. Um, more than 306,000 people came to see it in that year. It was hugely successful. And as you saw, you know, some of the takeaways had the donors' uh, logos and things on it. So, um, it, you know, that was our biggest selling tool is that the whole city is going to be focused on this 250th anniversary. The History Museum is kind of becoming the place to go commemorate that anniversary. Don't you want to be part of that? And that was a pretty appealing message to donors. Well, and Funders. just, um, can you show the very first slide from the very first Ford slide again? Um, yeah, I think you can actually see it on the handout as well. But we took our regular logo mm -hmm. and made a Ford's 150 logo, which we then used on everything. And I think that little bit of branding assistance really helped. Mm -hmm. um, you can see it there. even on our logo, on our uh, Twitter feed there. Have you all seen lasting impact, on positive impact on funders? Definitely. Yep. Mm -hmm. Some other concerns that you have about upcoming commemorations or planning? Or strategies that you are excited about that you want to share? I think uh, we're doing a World War I commemoration. Mm -hmm. And we're really trying to do it from a local perspective. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the home front. Instead yeah. of talking about what was going on in France, because there's so little connection. Right. But, and I think if you, if you tell it as there's a Connecticut story, that's, that's the real hook. So that's the lasting mm -hmm. impact for us. Um, we, like a lot of museums, uh, rely too heavily on the big blockbuster traveling show to have big years. And I had long been preaching, no, more focus on the local, more focus on the local. 250, 
allowed me then to say, see, this is what happens when we focus on local history. And that has been the real shift is now 80% of our exhibits are local rather than 80% being traveling. And we're continuing to see the kind of attendance we saw at 250. So telling people that World War I is really a Connecticut story, that's a compelling message to tell people. Um, I also, um, if, can you go forward to the Remembering Lincoln slide? Is that the remember? There we go. Okay, so um, we did actually, we did a presentation on this last year at IMLS, but um, remembering Lincoln is a, uh, rememberinglincoln.org is a microsite that we created for the 150th, and um, we, what it did was essentially exactly what you're talking about. We tried to, we got people from around the country, sites, all sorts of history, site, historical site, uh, societies, libraries, et cetera, to identify and digitize their personal connections to the assassination. So we got letters and diaries and objects, and then we mapped them. I mean, we actually sort of geolocated them and did some other things like that so that people can see what was local for an event that they might not feel a direct connection to if they weren't in Washington. Um, and I do think similarly, I mean, people, it's not quite, unlike the Civil War, which is really far back, people may have things. Well, that's Yeah. Uh, materials, uh, and it's it's for the <clears throat> senior citizens. It's the children mm -hmm. of World War One vets that are so far our biggest participants mm -hmm. because they want somebody to listen to their story. Mm -hmm. um, so that's going to mean they're rewarding. It has its challenges. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of like you know early morning events because that's when they're at the senior centers. Great. If you're interested, we got an IMLS grant that allowed us to create a digital platform to do this and it's open source. Okay, you guys work with history, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yes. I would just um, put out their commemorations as being um, processes and not just projects. Yes. And I think that's something that uh, I went to the Minnesota Historical Society and we had a couple really big um, uh, events, the commemoration of the U.S. Dakota War of 1862 and that is sort of into um, the upcoming bicentennial of historic Fort Snelling, which plays a very tragic role in that um, historic event. And I think, you know, we're continuing to learn from, from this, but it's really been more about becoming comfortable with that ambiguity of the, the process and the process of engaging stakeholders who don't trust you and um, the, the transparency that an organization needs to have when you're trying to rebuild that trust. So it was a big leap for us to be able to start conversations by acknowledging that our institution, which is 160 plus years old, was founded by the people who advocated for the extermination of the Dakota people and who basically stole their land and that we had human remains in our collections until the 1970s. And, you know, so that, that, that kind of um, uh, putting your whole self out there in, in the process um, is really painful and hard, <laughs> but I think um, it has started to transform our organization and transform our relationship with a number of communities who um, did not trust us for a long time. And this, the balance with that, too, is with the multiple stories, because we also have stakeholders who want a different yes. mm -hmm. whole, and um, uh, again, that's part of that, that process. So I don't know 
I think what you're saying um, is not it, it, what it captures because you had this one particularly difficult thing that you needed to do or you, you knew you sort of wanted to do. Um, for us, it was telling stories other than telling Lincoln's story and uh, of this tragic event. And I think maybe the key is what are the opportunities that you can take when this event is happening, that, that you can sort of use the commemoration, this anniversary, as a moment for to take an opportunity and, un, and build on it. Well, this relates to what you're saying. Um, how can you relate this to today? And a lot of people revered Lincoln. We have Lincoln's birthday as a holiday. Mm -hmm. I, I read a long time ago that African Americans used to have a, a picture of Lincoln and a picture of George Washington. And, but he was very hated, and someone shot him to death. Mm -hmm. Do you have any perspective on President Obama and how much people mm -hmm. hate him and want to shoot him as well? Because I read that he has more death threat, threats than any other president in history. Yeah. And I've personally heard people say terrible things. You know? yeah. So this, to me, is how you could join your, per, your perspective mm -hmm. on Lincoln's death with the yeah. death threats on President Obama. When we get to interpret uh, live, which we don't always because we're a very, very small footprint site with 650,000 visitors a year, um, so I don't, you know, we don't get to do live interpretation with everyone. We bring up, I mean, these are exactly the kinds of issues that people start to make connections in their own heads. I mean, we don't, often we don't even have to do it um, because it's so obvious, it starts to be so obvious. Um, one of the interesting things, is, you know, you can make the comparison of Obama to Lincoln, George W. Bush identified very closely with Lincoln because of his um, connection to, um, because of the choices that he had to make as an executive um, in relation to military um, in the face of a tragedy. Like, it, and it's stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think of, but um, there's a lot, of, there are a lot of people who identify really strongly with him and that if you start to look closely at Lincoln, you're like, oh, all these leadership things that different leaders who may not even be that much alike had decisions that they had to make are reflected in Lincoln. So yeah, I mean, I, I, those, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think that, that kind of thing, Lincoln was shot at twice before he was, before he was killed. Well, I think I was just going to say I think to that as well. Um, for me, it's not so much telling. We have this whole like self-discovery thing mm -hmm. we've been talking about within our exhibition space, um, and so for me and for my staff, it's not us telling people or making those connections for people. Um, it's allowing them that space to make connections mm -hmm. themselves. Um, and so we, just as an example, we have a kind of a small, a tower of TVs. You change, you can actually change the channel on the TV and it has a segregationist who, it has George Wallace who's in front of the doors and giving his famous speech, right? Um, and then you change it and it's, you know, a senator and then you change it. And, and so it's the primary source footage of the segregationist saying these things. And we don't even have to say, what do you think of that in connection to today? Our students, our families, our people are yeah. already talking about, oh, that kind of sounds like so-and-so when he said that about people in Mexico, or that sounds like. So I think, you know, as you guys are thinking of these commemorations as well, 
often I feel like people put a lot of pressure on themselves to say this is what we have to do and we have to make sure that we get all of this but for me at least I would say my advice to you is really just making sure more so it's the process making sure that you're opening up the opportunity to allow people to make those connections themselves and if you're careful about the stories you tell they'll make the connections for themselves and back back to the process because I do think sort of the these commemorations can feel like a burden at times, like, oh, I have to do this other anniversary. They really can change how you do things if, if you use them that way. So uh, our example is uh, five years ago, we did a 20th anniversary of the ADA, the American mm -hmm. with Disabilities Act. Since that time, our museum is a different place because we think about issues of accessibility much more than we ever did. And it was because of an exhibit uh, sm smaller than this room but it changed the way that we do our practice. Uh, and in just a couple of weekends, we're having the 25th anniversary of the ADA. The citywide celebration will be had there at the History Museum because we're now seen as a place that works with this community. And you know, we fail more than we succeed, but we, we're trying very hard to be a more accessible place. But it's all because of an anniversary exhibit. We're telling more local stories all because of an anniversary exhibit. You can talk more about race in Alabama because of this anniversary exhibit. Like These can have a lot of power because they do get a lot of attention, but it doesn't just have to be about a great project. It can really change what you do years from after that. I've heard, and I will get to your question in one second here, um, a lot of people saying things that, that remind me of something that I think was happening a lot, especially during the Civil War sesquicentennial, that fact that there might be a lack of trust that's hindering inclusivity, in part because of the last major commemoration of that event. In planning commemorations, how many of you, just a show of hands, have been hyper aware of how your community, your institution, what have you, commemorated it the last major time around. Okay, you clearly, yeah, a few hands go up, good. You just said, <laughs> after all that, I was thinking a bunch of different uh, questions, but then I thought, you know, commemoration, there's a, the his, commemoration there's a meta. history. Yeah. So when you do them, I want, and I was gonna ask you, yeah. you know, somebody did it in 200 years ago, somebody did it 50 years ago, 75, and it's really illuminating to look at that. And in fact, if you, I don't know if you all included any of that, but it's a great mirror to go, look how we, we, use, we used to think. And again, and now we think this way, and people can make the, make the leap and go, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're a completely different place now. We have different concerns or uh, things like that. So I wonder, did you all, did you incorporate Wait. like, hey, we looked a little bit at the 150th because that was the last big, uh, big commemoration, but, it, but that was a relatively small amount. What, what I was even more excited, though, was the chance for people celebrating the 300th anniversary to be able to do that because we consciously filled the archives with real data and real uh, assets that they could use with those postcards because those postcards talked all about what St. Louis was like at this one moment in time, um, what the neighborhoods were like, what were the major issues that people were experiencing. So while we maybe didn't look back as much as uh, we could have, the people in the 300th anniversary, we, we've done half their job for them. Um, so uh, I'm hoping they give us credit. But uh, yeah, I, and I think that... Uh, 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 oh, and I'm, 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 
I'm certain they will, and a lot of people did that. They said, this is what I'm hoping will happen in 50 years. Many of those people writing postcards wrote very personal letters to a specific person. So they said, I'm hoping that my niece Marie will read this postcard in 50 years. And so some really compelling stuff, both sort of personal and then also looking at the city. For us, I think, um, you know, the civil rights movement, again, has so many different, it's not like the assassination. There's not this one. There are, are many points um, and many years to be talking about. And um, so I think for me, I go back to community and context. So right where I first started the conversation in that for us, it's, it's not, you know, look at the parade that happened on this date versus the march that happened on this date. It's more the context of the community. So, um, you know, the 50th, during the civil rights movement, we're having the anniversary for the Civil War, right? And so the, when we're talking about Emancipation Proclamation, when we're talking about the end of the Civil War, when we're talking about the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, all of those values and legacies and things that have happened, then we're talking about are they still happening during the Civil Rights Movement? Are they still happening today? For, so for us, it, it has been more a discussion of the context of the time period during anniversaries as opposed to specific actions or dates that happened. Right. A space to be able to talk, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I won't speak on this too much, but A, Ford's Theater actually was not, um, we are, our 50th anniversary of our restoration is coming up in uh, 2018, so the theater was um, more or less uh, an empty, uh, or it had a museum in it, but it was, it was pretty sad um, in 1965. Um, but also, if, for any of you who know about the 100th anniversary of the Civil War, it was this very, very military-focused mm -hmm. commemoration that was all about how, you know, everybody fought and everybody fought bravely. And, you know, it was during the Civil Rights Movement. People were pretty freaked out about um, doing, you know, looking honestly at the Civil War. And the 50th anniversary, there were still uh, Civil War soldiers alive. So that was complicated in its own way. So in some ways, I feel like we're able to do something a little different 150 years in the past. I mean, it's much further in the past. Um, and, and we're able to look at it with a more critical lens than we have been at other times. Um, that doesn't mean we got it right, but. Um, yes. Uh, I'm with the first infantry division museum. We've got this perfect storm of anniversaries coming up. Mm. We've got the 75th anniversary of World War II, uh, which overlaps that. We are currently just started the 50th anniversary cycle of Vietnam, and in three years we're going to be in the 25th anniversary cycle of Desert Storm. Uh, and of course, every one of these wars involves the First Infantry Division, and so it's kind of like, well, how, you know, which which basket are we going to put our eggs in? And in all honesty. You know, we, we look at we look at World War II and we're kind of like, man, we're kind of over these guys. Um, 
you know, don't take that away. But I mean, the, you know, they've been hit on the 50th. I mean, they, they had, the World War II guys have been hit on numerous, numerous, numerous cycles here. So it's not like we're going to ignore it. But the biggest one really should be World War One. But that carries the least amount of weight because there's nobody around, right? I mean, it, it's a, it's the, there's no veterans walking in it. And so really, what we're going to end up doing, well, we have you know permanent exhibit galleries that address World War One and World War Two. Um, and so there will be some work within those spaces, uh, but we're creating, we just got funding to create a new permanent gallery that actually addresses the history from Vietnam on up to the present time. So in this cycle, when really everyone is looking at World War I, hopefully, uh, and it's going to be the cycle of, of uh, World War II, we're looking post-Vietnam to the present. Uh, and, and that's we're actually going to open that in 2018, so this is kind of like, a hundred years anniversary for us. And that's what we're saying is that we're bringing this story up to the present time. And I think that brings up a good point too, which is sometimes you, ju you just can't do the anniversary right. exhibits and you have to be able to tell people. We have people all the time who say, oh, but it's the anniversary of this. Are you doing the exhibit about the anniversary of this? And sometimes that answer has to be no. We just can't cover yeah. every anniversary. Uh, you know, sometimes we can do some programming around it again easier, but even that we can't do absolutely every anniversary. So those are tough discussions to have. Um, I know someone just called me the other day and said uh, the local radio station, and it's an important radio station in radio history as well, so I'm interested in the topic, but they said they're having their 90th anniversary. Can you do an exhibit? And I said, no, but uh, I'm interested in the 100th anniversary. And I know 10 years seems far away, but for me, it's not that far away. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that is the flip side, is that sometimes we can't do them, and we just have to be able, just like when we tell stories that are controversial, we have to be able to say, well, these are the reasons we can't do this particular anniversary. And, and that's hard, but that's public history, too. You know, the history professor in the classroom doesn't get hit a lot about why aren't we talking about this anniversary. But when you're doing work with the public, you're going to get hit with that. It's only bigger with social media, the uh, OTT. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're yeah. on this day. Yeah. I mean, we are. Yeah. You know, we're inundating each other in the world with these, uh, with these specific things. Which is maybe helpful in some ways, too, because maybe we can do it on social media and say, look, right. we did it. Uh, a little deeper than that. But yeah. Yes, Sam. I'm interested in knowing how many folks in the room are, are looking at Vietnam because I think it, it's tied in with those trust issues and the, the need to really have good community dialogue. We've got a group of, of local veterans who have come to us, you know, who really want us to do something with them. We're working on that, but they're real gun shy. They're not mm -hmm. sure they can trust us. They're not sure they can trust the community to welcome their stories. Um, and I'd be interested to know how other people are handling those sorts of discussions with their Vietnam veterans because we'd really love to get some great yeah. community conversations yeah. going. We have who we think is a very credible moderator who can come in and help us with some public forum. But at the same time, none of those veterans want to step forward and be part of our panel. Right. Um, and I'm just interested in knowing how other people are finding that role for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Are you aware that there's a 10-year program for Welcome Home Vietnam? Veterans. It started this year and it's going to continue every year for 10 years. So we did the first year and it brought out a lot of the veterans who hadn't participated in anything before. But the key points were to work through VFWs, American Legions, uh, Marine Corps Leagues, and, uh, and those groups. So if you have those groups working with you, 
the other guy as well. Yeah. Well, we have we have two local organizations of Vietnam veterans in particular who came to us and wanted to do this. They say they've reached out to those other organizations, but there's <laughs> there's some internal conflict between those groups too. And our, our, our two. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll find out they don't need what you want to give them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe instead of we think program, we think this, we think that, and instead they need a circle. Well, they, they're basically going to do a pop-up museum for us on a, on a Saturday. We're doing the panel on the, the Sunday to try and flesh that out a little bit more. And they need your help, though. They need your help because the uh, uh, Department of Defense has, has mandated this 10-year program, but is not providing any, uh, any funding, doesn't want the celebrations to be on the basis, uh, in our case in Fort Worth this year, they didn't even want the military guys to wear their uniforms to the celebration. So they need your help. That yeah. makes me angry. No, we want that yeah. crazy. Case. Yeah, because it's just more of the same from 50 years ago. Did you, any of you have issues of dealing with groups that were a little reticent about being included, but wanted to desperately? Um, not so much with commemorations or anniversaries. I was just talking to someone at my last session about um, an LGBT institute that we started. Um, she was coming because she had, had seen that we um, just launched an LGBT exhibition, a temporary exhibition, and so then I was also telling her that we have this new LGBT institute that we've launched. Um, it's got three pillars, so it's programming, there's a symposium, and then there's a scholar in residence section. Um, but I think that's the closest, perhaps, um, to what we're talking about in that we have a lot of um, people who are intrigued um, by what we're doing but are also waiting to see if we're telling enough of the story, if we're telling the story that they want us to tell. Um, we did our temporary exhibition and they said, oh, but that's not permanent, you know? So there are always levels to, to the relationship. Um, but for us, it's just been one about transparency um, and let, you know, saying this is a temporary exhibition, this is just the start of something, this is focused specifically on Atlanta history, so don't think we're gonna talk about the world and forever history of LGBT. Um, but also that we just keep coming back so I think that that, um, that has helped in creating this institute and an advisory committee has helped. Um, same thing, we have um, the Islamic Speakers Bureau is a partner of ours, um, but generally our um, Muslim constituents are a little bit, you know, waiting for, to see what will happen. And I just did a program with the Islamic Speakers Bureau this past past Saturday, um, and we had people there who were saying, you know, there's not enough of Malcolm X, there's not enough about the Black Panthers, there's not enough about the Muslim community in your exhibitions, and saying that during a program when we were partnering with the Islamic Speakers Bureau. Um, you know, in some other places with some other people, it would have been like, all right, we tried, we're not partnering with you anymore. On, on the flip side of that, our staff is saying, okay, when do you want to have another conversation about this? So just keep coming back to them um, because it's 
you know, there are a lot deeper things that are happening, obviously, and so if you keep coming back and you keep showing through your actions that you want to listen and you're trustworthy, um, you'll build those relationships. And it, it takes a lot of time. I, I'm sure, Minnesota, you know, right? It takes a long time for this to happen, um, and you just have to keep, keep going back. And uh, I think... Yeah. Well, and the nice thing I think is that those small steps will pay huge dividends down the road if we keep at it. So, you know, it can be a small project. It can be, you know, one program, but then the next time it's multiple programs or the next time it eventually leads to an exhibit. So, you know, we have done uh, teens make history oral history program with veterans that veterans from many different wars but it, it started that process we did a photographer local photographer who had taken uh, these amazing portraits of homeless veterans so they saw that we did that story and then with the 1968 exhibit uh, you know we get veterans to help uh, and this is Minnesota's idea that they push with every site that takes it. Local veterans came in to put together the Huey helicopter. So, but those, if those were just one-offs, it would be a small thing, but it's building that trust and building that relationship. Cool. Um, can, can I just say yep. one last thing, which is make sure that you have somebody who is tracking those relationships, because if they, they can happen all yep. over the place and nobody's really paying attention to how things are progressing and it can be great but if you don't if if it isn't tracked it can it, it can hurt ultimately all right so a closing question what's one piece of advice each one of you have um, that you would give us about about commemorative programming or something an opportunity that you felt you didn't capitalize on enough during your last one and what you would do differently start early and get all of your stakeholders engaged as early as possible I would say um, don't be afraid to think outside of the box and do something different. Just because it's a commemoration doesn't mean that you have to do what everybody else is doing. Yeah, and I'm just going to piggyback on Dina. I, I would just say go big. Uh, these are great chances to go big and do yes. lots of innovative yeah. projects and programs. Yeah. And it's the oftentimes the one time where you've got lots of the community and the boards and whatnot behind you because they get anniversary exhibits. You know, we have a great map exhibit right now. It's doing incredibly well, but it was much harder for me to sell than the 250th anniversary of the city. So use that opportunity to try out some wild ideas. Yeah. Great. Yes. Thank you all for participating. <laughs>